Uh, Lord, we, uh, we have this awesome gift in your word. And, uh, and Lord, an even better gift in your spirit uh, living in us. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would take these words and the words of your servant, uh, Carl, and Lord, that they could speak in this place, that your word would become alive in our midst and transform us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Is it on? Let's see. You're on. Good morning. Good morning. It's my privilege to be with you. I, uh, I'm a Dutch dyke jumper and an immigrant. Uh, came to this country in 1956 when the Hungarians were fleeing. Some of you may remember that. Uh, landed in New York in uh, December 25, 1956, so I'm a Christmas present. But who thinks of refugees, immigrants, as Christmas presents? But here I am. Um, my folks originally started out in Holland, Michigan, uh, that's in a little uh, hill town called Graskop. That's how Americans say it, Graskop. Dutchmen say it as Grafschap. That's, that's the correct pronunciation. But then my uh, parents moved to uh, Grand Rapids and uh, we first started out on the northwest side, first uh, on Marion Street in the west side and went to West Leonard. Then they moved to Lowell Avenue and became members of uh, Mayfair. And uh, they stayed on the north side and we moved to first back to the Netherlands and then from the Free University I went to with my wife and child to uh, Brazil where I pastored uh, for 14 years, planted churches, and also uh, taught at a seminary. And uh, then in 1990, uh, 87, we went back to the Netherlands, back to Brazil, and 1990 back here. And prior to that, I was also, uh, Uncle Sam called me and sent me to Vietnam. That's where I got to practice my French. So it helps to be a polyglot. That way uh, you can uh, speak different languages. I just got back from uh, San Diego and Chula Vista where our daughter lives. Um, my Spanish is not so good, but with my Portuguese I have no problems. But you'd be surprised. I was able to use, uh, I was able to use German, Dutch, English, Portuguese. Can you imagine? Uh, because there's some people, immigrants, who come over who just don't speak the English language. We are so accustomed to speaking the English language. I call that the big country effect. Wherever we go, people speak English, right? When we lived in Brazil, and uh, it's a little bit different now, but then people only spoke Portuguese. And we lived in southern Brazil, and when we would go uh, on furlough to the United States, they said, do they speak Portuguese there too? The Russians think, and the Chinese think, that everybody speaks their language, just like we think everybody ought to speak English, right? It's just not true. In Chicago, there's over 110 different languages. And if we don't learn some of them, we can't make disciples because we don't understand their language nor their culture. Isn't that right? Just look at the one story here about French. 
I had to learn French in high school. And when our kids went to school in the Netherlands, uh, they only spoke Portuguese, but then they learned English, German, and French. And because we were living in the Netherlands, they had to learn Dutch too. So our kids, all of them speak four languages. And I think as Christians, we ought to, le- ought to learn more cultures and more languages so we can understand them and share the gospel. Does that make sense to everybody? That's just my passion. I just had a lot of fun in San Diego and Chula Vista. Walk, I love to walk around and just talk with people in different languages. It's just a lot of fun. And our text for today is Psalm 2. Psalm 2. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 2. Sean invited me to uh, do a series of four Sundays for Advent. And I have in the Old Testament specialized in two areas, the Psalms and Isaiah. Uh, But I thought we do it at the Psalms because usually it's Isaiah for Advent. But the Psalms are also uh, very important. So in these four Sundays, we're going to look at Four psalms, Psalm 2, Psalm 72, you can already, you know, during the week, look at it for next Sunday, then Psalm 89, and then Psalm 96, okay? So for these four Sundays, it's going to be Psalm 2, Psalm 72, 89, and 96. And I'll explain in a moment why I picked those, okay? So let's read Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Happy are all who take refuge in him. As is quite obvious from the liturgy, and as Sean indicated, today is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent is a word that comes from the Latin, which means he's coming. 
And in the time of Advent, Advent, we reflect on the first coming of Christ, which is the incarnation when Jesus was born. And we eagerly look forward to his return because we know that he's coming again. So we live in great expectation. And maybe we ought to entitle Advent as a period of time using the title of a book, Great Expectations, right? And I would just imagine, like to invite you to think that we are sitting today not in, on Spencer Street, but somewhere in Syria or Iraq. Can you do that with me? Huh? As Sean mentioned in his prayer, the nations are in turmoil. Now we believe that there is one sovereign God and that he's in control of everything. Right? But who really is in control? And that's where Psalm 2 plays an important part. As I mentioned, it's usually Isaiah that gets most, the prophet Isaiah, that gets the attention during the Advent season. But there is also another tradition in the Advent season, and that is a tradition that was started by the composer Handel. And that great piece of music handles Messiah. And isn't it interesting that just prior to the great hallelujah chorus, Psalm 2 is quoted? It's Psalm 2. Prior to that chorus, the bass and tenor, they all they are drawn from, uh, they sing and they draw from Psalm 2. For example, the bass sings. Verses 1 and 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the Lord of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. And the chorus then responds, let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. And then the tenor comments, the one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord's scoffs at them. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Like many Jewish believers and many Christians believers before him, Handel read Psalm 2 messianically. Handel understood that when the psalmist refers to Yahweh as the Lord's anointed, when God speaks to the king and says, you are my son, Handel understood that ultimately, prophetically, the psalmist was speaking about Jesus. Psalm 2 belongs to what scholars call a two-part introduction to the Psalter. The two-part introduction is 
composed of two psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. They are clearly joined together because neither one of them has a title, a subscription. It doesn't say from David, neither one of them does. Psalm 3 is the first one that does that, but Psalms 1 and 2 do not. But what really joins them is that Psalm 1 starts as Psalm 2 ends. Psalm 1 begins, happy is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners, but meditates constantly on the law of the Lord. Psalm 2 ends with the same word. I know the NIV said blessed, but the Hebrew says happiness. And I like happiness a lot better. Because you and I live in a country, and I as an immigrant came to this country, because in this country, what do we pursue, according to the Declaration of Independence? Happiness. But it's not just you and me here who are pursuing happiness, nor just American citizens. The reason why Europe has the refugee crisis is because every human being is in search of what? Happiness. Right? You all agree with me? Yeah. And in that connection, that two-part introduction stands Psalm 2. Psalm 1 deals with the issue of, okay, the truly happy person is the righteous person who really meditates on the law of the Lord. Whatever that person does succeeds. That's the claim. Not so the way of the wicked. The way of the wicked, according to the last verse, the way of the wicked self-destructs. It's a dead-end road. Doesn't always seem that way, but that's the claim. Psalm 2 takes it on a national level. And it focuses on that constant rebellion of kings and rulers against God. Psalm 2 does not give us a specific occasion. It doesn't tell you and me when this rebellion happened. Because it's an ongoing thing. Even now, would you agree? Even now, the nations, their rulers, are continuing their constant rebellion against the Lord and his anointed. And I find it very interesting that the psalmist doesn't say that the nations are against the Israelite king. One might expect that. Now, it's the opposite way. It's against the Lord and his anointed, because if you rebel against the anointed one of the Lord, you're rebelling against whom? 
against God. Exactly. You got it right. <laughs> Boy, you're good. You're tracking. Right? If you rebel against the king of Israel, you're rebelling against God. And the psalmist raise, uh, states that question in unbelief. He says, why do the, he can't believe it. He, say, he asks, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot, and then notice, in vain. Think about it. Remember, we're in a church in Syria or Iraq. Remember, we're not on Creston Heights. That's where we're sitting. You've got that struggle of ISIS. The Russians are in. The U.S. is trying to figure out what to do. Uh, Turkey shot down a, a Russian plane and the Russians are isolating Turkey. All of that's going on, right? I saw a headline on CNN this week as I was in Chula Vista in California. Why aren't people calling this World War III? Why not? I mean, the French are arming, the Russians are, the English are wanting in. We've been in there for who knows how long already, right, if you keep count. Remember, we went in there to start a new world order. That was the slogan for the first Persian Gulf. Huh? Yeah? Remember, we're in a church in Iraq or in Syria. We're not here. So if you have that perspective, you say, yeah, those Americans, they started it all. So our country is part of this rebellion, right? Don't you think? And you don't even have to go on that kind of military kind of thing. There's also a cultural war going on. We don't say politi it's not politically correct to say happy Christmas. It's now happy holiday. Right? I was sharing with Sean. I was in Chula Vista. New houses and new developments all over the place. Huge shopping malls. But as I walked, we were there five days and I have a heart condition so I have to walk in the morning and in the afternoon. So I walked through all those neighborhoods. I did not see one church. I went on the internet and tried to find a church that had a service on Thanksgiving Day. My son's in the military. There wasn't a church that had Thanksgiving service. Culturally, just look at the numbers of the church. The numbers are dwindling. Culturally, we're also at war against the Lord and against His anointed, aren't we? That's the picture that you see in the first three verses. Psalm 2 is actually four pictures. Four little video clips, the one that we just saw, which asks about those kings. 
And to really understand it, we must understand it as what it is. It is a cry of defiance. Psalm 2 is a cry of defiance. I don't have time this morning to go into that at depth, but let me just remind you that in Second uh, <clears throat> Chronicles 13, Abijah, the king of Judah, is attacked by the Israelite king. And he's greatly outnumbered. But in defiance, he says to the Israelite king, don't you know that the Lord has chosen the house of David to rule over Israel? And he goes, a lengthy speech, which is very similar to Psalm 2. Just to say, can't believe that you want to go against the anointed one of the Lord, which is the house of David. Because God has made certain promises. And sure enough, when the priest blew the trumpet, the Lord defeated the Israelite army. Judah won, even though outnumbered. Likewise, this, is, this poem here, Psalm 2, is a cry of defiance with all of the complexity around us, politically, militarily, culturally. With Israel, we say, how can they? It is, as the psalmist says in verse 1, in vain. Isn't that interesting? All of their plotting, all of the strategies, it amounts to a hill of beans. Right? And you and I can say so because, fast forwarding, we know that in the end, God will be supreme anyway. So that's why the psalmist in the second strophe which goes from verses 4 through 6. The psalmist takes us in this little video clip. He takes us to heaven. And there sits God. And what is God doing? Laughing. He's just laughing his head off. Isn't that curious? I mean, just imagine even today, since there's no specific occasion for this poem, it is a general statement about the human race and their governments, their constant rebellion against God. What does God really have to say about it? What's going on in the world today? It's good for a belly laugh. Isn't that something? God laughs. And it's very interesting that the first strophe, verses 1 through 3, ends in a quotation of what the rulers say. Let's throw off their fetters. They want to throw off their yoke. They want to be free. And that's us human beings. We want to be 
autonomous selves. And you and I live in a selfie culture, don't we? That's a new word that our culture has created. But I was in San Diego, went to the San Diego uh, safari, and all I saw was that little stick with an iPhone on it, and there, you know, (laughs) people taking selfies with the animals. We live in the selfie culture. But have no concern for each other. That's our culture. Over against that, the Lord says something else. The Lord is laughing. But then in verse 6, he says, look, I have installed my king, that's the anointed one, on Zion, my holy hill. Your nations may be in constant rebellion, but don't forget, I have set my king on Mount Zion. When you think of it, it's almost ridiculous. When you think of it, Israel wasn't that big of a country. It wasn't the size of the United States, not even the size of Michigan. And when you think of Judah, it's Kent County. Imagine me saying today, folks, hey Russians, forget what you're doing. I have set my king on the throne in Grand Rapids. I would say, Grand Rapids, where's that? That's what somebody asked me in California. At the zoo, I was wearing my Calvin Seminary jacket because it was cold. And cold in California, can you imagine? It was only 40 degrees out there. So I had my Calvin Seminary jacket on. He says, where's Calvin Seminary located? I said, Grand Rapids. He says, where's that? Yeah, not everybody knows that. That's how insignificant Jerusalem is. It wasn't as big as Egypt. It wasn't as big as Babylon. And nevertheless, God says, laughing at the nations, the big empires, laughing at Russia, laughing at the U.S. and anybody else that wants to be big. I have set my king on Mount Zion. The third strophe goes on to elaborate that. It elaborates it. There, the king that God has established and put on the throne repeats the royal decree which he has received on Coronation Day. On Coronation Day, the king would receive a a document which would be his contract. It was already spelled out that way in Deuteronomy chapter 17. He'd received that decree. And what was the decree? First of all, in verse 7 we read, He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. That's the first thing God has said to him. Now that's coronation day. What does that mean? Let me try that. Let me try to unpack that for you a moment by asking you this question. 
what do we really mean when we say, as a church and as believers, that Jesus is the Son of God? What are we really saying? To my surprise, that question doesn't even come up in the Heidelberg Catechism. And that's probably because during the time of the Reformation, our primary concern, their primary concern was about justification by faith and our personal salvation. So the question does come up in the Heidelberg Catechism, why Jesus is called my Savior. But you see, Psalm 2 is so important that it was quoted. It is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Did you know that? It is. Especially this verse. This verse, you are my son, those words were spoken to Jesus on the occasion of his baptism. Do you remember that? Heaven opened, dove came down, and what were the words? You are my son. When Jesus was transfigured on the mountain before the disciples... What voice did the disciples hear? God speaking. And what did God say? This is my son. What does that mean? That Jesus is the son of God. Well, it not only means that he is God's son who became flesh, John 1, verse 14. It means this. In the ancient Near East, a great emperor was called father. The smaller king was called son. And when David wanted to build a temple for God, God said, no, no. I'll build you a house. And there's always going to be one of your sons on the throne. And then God said, using the language that we're talking about, I will be his father and he will be my son. So, when we say that Jesus is the son of God, that means that he is a Davidic king and that he rules, right? That's what makes this psalm so interesting, at least to my mind. As a veteran, I'm a Vietnam veteran who fought in the feudal war. That's what makes this psalm so interesting for me. If God has set his king on the throne, then why does it look like World War III is happening? I thought that with the ending of World War II and the establishment of the United Nations that that would be over, right? And if Jesus is king, what difference does it make? Fair question? Huh? difference does it make? Secondly, in the decree, what is 
even more perplexing and interesting. Verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possessions. Now God had promised that Israel would be God's inheritance. Just read Psalm 28 verse 9. Here God promises to the Davidic king that the whole earth will be his inheritance. And moreover, he will conquer all of these nations according to verse 9. You will rule them with an iron scepter and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. The Davidic king is going to win. That's why in verse 1 already for the psalmist, this whole constant rebellion is in vain. Because ultimately, God, through his Davidic king, who we as Christians say is Jesus, right? Who has already come, on the occasion of his baptism, was declared to be the son of God. In other words, the son of David, right? He is going to win. Ultimately. And we say that because when you read the history of Israel, the Davidic kings didn't do so well, did they? And that's why I read the prophets in Isaiah, for example, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11. They were already projecting these words to the future and said, now in the future that's going to happen. But Advent says, yes, but when Jesus was born and on the occasion of his baptism, he was pronounced son of God. And his rule began. Because the minute he was baptized, he went out and preached what? The kingdom is here. And you and I, either in Iraq or Syria, are wondering, where is it? What? Yeah. But nevertheless, guaranteed of the outcome that ultimately the Davidic king, who for us is Jesus, will win. In the final strophe, the poet then says, Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, that's the anointed one, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. It's interesting that in this poem, the word wrath and anger occurs twice. It's a word that we in church don't like. We like grace nowadays. We're in the culture of grace. But you look at verse uh, 5 and you have, and terrifies them in his wrath. I skipped over that on purpose so as not to repeat it twice. But now we have in verse 12, we have his wrath. The wrath of God is his invincible purpose 
to be sovereign in the end. The wrath of God is an expression of his righteousness. The wrath of God is the flip side of his love. God loves the world so much that he did what? He sent his only begotten son. God loves the world. So when he sees that something's wrong, when he sees sin and evil, he sends his son. To whom he says, you are my son, and makes him the Davidic king. You see, a God who can't get angry at evil and sin is a distant and abstract concept and doesn't do us any good. Does it? Not really. And God's strategy against sin, he sent his son and said, on the day of his baptism, on the day of his transfiguration, you are my son. And that's what we confess about Jesus. And that means that he is the Davidic king who will, in the end, inherit everything And what did Jesus say on occasion of the resurrection in Matthew 28, verse 18? Everything has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And what should be your and my response as we await the second coming? Make disciples. Because it's very interesting that a book which I also taught at Calvin Seminary, the book of Revelation, our psalm plays a key role. And I'd like to have you look at three texts with me. First of all, chapter 12 in the book of Revelation, in which our psalm is quoted. Remember I said Psalm 2 is the most quoted psalm of the Old Testament. I would call the first, uh, <clears throat> the first six uh, verses of chapter 12 the most curious Christmas story ever. Most curious Christmas story ever. And I've preached on it on Christmas Day, but I'd like to call your attention to verse 5. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Do you hear verse 9 of Psalm 2? That's the birth. That's the first coming. Now turn with me to the second coming. Turn with me to the second coming. And that's Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. 
verse 15, where we read, Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. That's Isaiah. And then, he will rule them with an iron scepter. That's Psalm 2, verse 9. When Jesus was born, he started to rule. But it will be completed at the second coming. Well, what do we do in the meantime? Right? In the meantime. Well, go with me to chapter 2 of the book of Revelation where we have another quote of our text. I'd like to read verse 26. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. Why are you called a Christian? The catechism asks us. It's because like Christ we are what? Prophet? Priest and king. Jesus is the son of God. That's what Psalm 2 says. So are we, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, because if you are in Jesus Christ, then God is your father and you are sons and daughters. That's verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 6. You may check it at home. And that means that we rule. But how do we rule? Putting missiles at the Turkey border like the Russians right now? All in the name of God with the blessing of the Orthodox Church? Hardly. How did Christ rule? And how did he win? By suffering. By suffering. Just read the book of Revelations. God in Jesus Christ won through suffering. Not tanks, not missiles. Not nuclear bombs, but suffering. Remember, we're either in Iraq or in Syria. And if you've seen the beheadings of Christians, you know that awaits us, right? Suffering. Are you ready? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for its kind reminder that amidst the turmoil in the nations that your son, Jesus Christ, does rule and that he's given us authority to rule as well like him.
through suffering by making disciples. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Our closing